The code sets up high standards of performance for motion picture producers. It states the considerations which good taste and community value make necessary in this universal form of entertainment. Hi, so that old-timey recording that you just heard was noted homophobe and former Postmaster General Will Hayes talking about the motion picture production code which he helped create in the early 1930s. The code essentially mandated that no positive representations of queer people could ever be present in American film. The code was abandoned in the 1960s in favor of our current, still pretty homophobic, rating system. I'm Allie, I'm a graduate student at Georgetown studying English and film, and on this podcast, The Queer Code, we look into the history of queer-coded and or subtextually queer films. Each episode focuses on two films from one genre. So this episode is part two of the slasher discussion, and we're talking about the 1960 film Psycho and the 1985 film A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge. Um, Just to recap from last episode, a slasher movie is a subset of horror where a stalker kills people, usually teenagers, typically through slashing or stabbing with a knife. Classic slasher plot involves a group of teenagers being killed off one by one until our final girl, or boy in the case of Freddy's Revenge, faces off with the stalker killer alone. The slasher genre deals with rural and suburban areas, childhood trauma, and the long-lasting effects of collective and or community sin. So for part two of the slasher discussion, our co-host and guest interviewee will be the same as part one. Austin Carr will be our co-host again. Hi, I'm Austin. Um, I'm an actor and singer and model living in Los Angeles, and I'm also genetically related to Allie. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we will also hear again from Caitlin Vincent Allett, Georgetown film professor, editor of the Journal of Cinema and Media Studies, and author of the books Killer Tapes and Shattered Screens and um, Remote Control. And she has a third book on film, material film culture that is forthcoming. So we are going to start with a clip from the 1960 film Psycho. This clip is commonly referred to as Dinner with Norman. Sit down. Thank you. You're very kind. It's all for you. I'm not hungry. Go ahead. You, you eat like a bird. You know, of course. No, not really. Anyway, I hear the expression, eats like a bird, is really a fault. False, falsity, because birds really eat a tremendous lot. But I don't really know anything about birds. My hobby is stuffing things, you know, taxidermy. And I guess I'd just rather stuff birds because I hate the look of beasts when they're stuffed. You know, foxes and chimps. Some, some people even stuff dogs and cats, but oh, I can't do that. I think only birds look well stuffed because, well, because they're kind of passive. 
to begin with. It's a strange hobby. Curious. Uncommon, too. Oh, I imagine so. And it's, uh, it's not as expensive as you'd think. It's cheap, really. You know, needles, and thread, sawdust. The chemicals are the only thing that, that, that cost anything. A man should have a hobby. Well, it's... It's, it's more than a hobby. A hobby's supposed to pass the time, not fill it. Is your time so empty? No. Well, I, I run the office and uh, tend the cabins and grounds and, and do little uh, errands for my mother, the one she allows I might be capable of doing. And do you go out with friends? Well, a, a boy's best friend is his mother. You've never had an empty moment in your entire life, have you? Only my share. Where are you going? I didn't mean to pry. I'm looking for a private island. What are you running away from? Why do you ask that? People never run away from anything. The rain didn't last long, did it? You know what I think? I think that... we're all in our private traps, clamped in them, and none of us can ever get out. We scratch and, and claw, but only at the air, only at each other. And for all of it, we never budge an inch. Sometimes we deliberately step into those traps. I was born in mine. I don't mind it anymore. Okay, so that was a scene between Norman Bates and Marion pretty soon after they first meet. So Psycho was released in 1960. It was directed by Alfred Hitchcock with a screenplay by Joseph Stefano. It was based on a 1959 novel by Robert Block and was also like very loosely based on the real-life case of Ed Gein called The Butcher of Plainfield. Gein dug up a bunch of corpses and he also murdered at least two women. The Gein case was the famous case where the killer was trying to create a like woman suit so that he could literally become his dead mother. So Norman Bates' story in the first Psycho film is not identical to Ed Gein's. Um, but there are some similarities, especially the relationship between, like, the killers and their mothers. So Psycho begins by telling Marion's story. She's played by Janet Lee. Marion is a secretary at a real estate company in Phoenix, Arizona, and she's dating Sam. He's a man in Fairville, California. Um, and all we really know about him is that, like, they can't get married or be together or whatever uh, because he is in a bunch of debt. So Marion steals a bunch of money from this gross, misogynistic, rich old man who leaves a really huge cash deposit at the real estate firm. The first half of the film, Marion is like in her car on the run. She's driving from Phoenix to Fairville with this money to like get Sam and like go buy an island together or something. I don't know. Anyway, so she's trying to avoid this cop who's been like tailing her so she stays off all the main roads and she pulls over at Bates Motel during a rainstorm and it's yeah it's it's off the main roads and it's in this like deserted rural area and that's where she meets Norman Bates played by Anthony Perkins and he runs the motel so Bates Motel is like 
this series of like connected cabin room things and it's nearby this like large old house that's on a sort of hill thing so norman tells marion that he and his mom live in the big old house and that the cabin things are where the guests stay anyway marion sees like a figure sitting in the window like a shadow of a figure through the window that norman says is his mother Norman offers to bring Marion dinner, so he goes to the house to get it, and Marion hears his mother yelling at him and telling him, like, stop lusting after that woman or something like that, I don't know. Uh, Marion and Norman eat in his office full of stuffed birds, and that's where they have the conversation that we heard earlier. Marion realizes that she should, like, go back to Phoenix and try to give the money back and, like, figure a way out or whatever. So later that night, She's, like, peacefully taking a shower, and that's when she's stabbed to death by a shadowy figure in a dress. And this is, like, one of the most famous stabbing scenes, and also just movie scenes in general, like, ever filmed. Um, and I just feel like we need to give a shout-out to Hitchcock for killing off his main character halfway through the movie, and then just, like, moving forward with a completely... Or mostly unfamiliar set of characters like that is a bold move and I mean he succeeds it's a good movie it works anyway Marion's sister Lila she teams up with Sam the boyfriend and this private investigator who's looking for the money that Marion stole and they're all looking for Marion together they track her to Bates Motel the private investigator goes to the motel questions Norman Norman's being like real weird so the investigator gets suspicious and he asks to talk to Norman's mother um but Norman is very adamant that the investigator will not question his mother <laughs> also this is the movie where the famous line a boy's best friend is his mother <laughs> spoken by Norman Bates anyway the same like shadowy figure in a dress that killed Marion kills the investigator so Sam and Lila, they don't hear from the investigator. They talk to the local sheriff near Bates Motel, and he tells them that, surprise, Mrs. Bates has been dead for years because she, like, murdered her boyfriend's husband, maybe? He's not Norman's dad. I think he's her boyfriend. She, like, murders her boyfriend and then kills herself, supposedly. So the sheriff says none of this is suspicious because he's... I don't know, he doesn't care and is not very smart. And he's like, whatever, the investigator probably stole the money and left. No big deal. But Lila and Sam are not convinced because Marion is literally still missing. So they go to Bates Motel and they pose as a couple looking for a room. And Sam distracts Norman while Lila sneaks into the house where Norman and his mother live. Norman figures out what Sam and Lila are doing, he knocks Sam out, and he runs to the house. Lila is hiding from Norman in the basement, and while she's down there, she finds a seated figure wearing, like, a blanket wrap thing. So she goes over, and she turns the chair around, and we find out that this is the corpse of Norman's mother, and that she's been dead the whole time. And Norman's just been, like, keeping her corpse around and dressing it up and stuff. Anyway, Norman runs into the basement but he's dressed as his mother with like a wig and everything and he tries to stab Lila but Sam has regained consciousness and he runs in and he subdues Norman slash Mrs. Bates um so Norman is arrested and then the psychiatrist comes and he tells Sam and Lila that 
Norman must have killed his mom and her boyfriend years ago and that he's been like dressing up as her since and that Mrs. Bates is an alternate alternate personality in Norman's mind and that at different times Norman and Mrs. Bates take over Norman's body. So Mrs. Bates, who I think is also referred to as like mother, um, she kills any woman that Norman is attracted to. According to the psychiatrist, I kind of disagree, but anyway, so Norman's been arrested and his mind has been completely taken over by his Mrs. Bates persona. So the final shot of the movie is amazing. And it zooms in on Norman, like, sitting in his cell. And we have a woman's voiceover, presumably, like, Norman's Mrs. Bates persona. And she's describing how, like, Norman is the real villain and she's completely innocent. And, like, can't they see that? Um, and it's this really cool and also very unsettling scene. And that's the end of the movie. My name is Caitlin Benson-Allett. I am a Provost Distinguished Associate Professor in the Department of English and the Film and Media Studies program at Georgetown University. Do you remember when we talked, you said you had a lot about Psycho? I can talk about Psycho forever. Yeah, okay. So a lot of people credit Psycho as being um, the first slasher movie. It came out in 1960, so well before um, the slasher cycle beginning either with Texas Chainsaw Massacre or uh, Halloween in the late 1970s and continuing through the 80s, arguably into the 90s. People love to fight about when the slasher cycle ended. But people call Psycho an early slasher or the first slasher because it is so interested in um, the connection of knife and flesh, right? In the in the famous shower scene because it's about bodily objection, um, the threat of violating um, social and particularly sexual norms, and because it seems it has been interpreted by some as um, being about punishment, Marion's punishment for violating sexual norms. I don't wanna say that slasher movies are never misogynistic or that slasher movies are never um, homophobic, but they aren't always or aren't just misogynistic and um, homophobic. And that's why I try to kind of rhetorically push back against like, yeah, they're just punishing Marion for being sexually active. I actually think like the dynamics of sex and sexual desire and fear of transgression in slasher movies are much more complicated. How do you read Norman Bates? So um, I try to read Norman Bates from the perspective in which he was created, right? So I want to think about like, what were the anxieties about masculinity and um, female identification among men in the 1960s, right? And I'm not trying to defend the film. I think that it is... um, I think it is like a homophobic depiction, but I think that homophobia has a brilliant ability to change and morph over time. Um, So what we mean when we say it's homophobic now might or might not be a good description of the actual uh, 
the actual way in which um, Norman's identification with his mother was feared in 1960, if that makes sense, right? So like in 1960, the U.S. is um, wrapped up in this discourse of momism um, and fear that women, that mothers, were overindulging their male sons and that sons weren't rejecting their mothers to go out and be autonomous, um, you know, lords of the universe, Right. So not that we don't still have a homophobic discourse around um, sons and mothers and blaming mothers for um, their children's queerness now, but it's different than it was in in 1960. Um, okay. So then also people say like Norman is a homophobic uh, representation. I'm like, well, Norman's not gay or Norman is not simply gay, right? Like Norman doesn't express, doesn't get to express, you could argue, um, same sex attraction in psycho. So we might be reading too much into him to call him a gay character, right? That doesn't happen on screen. In fact, we see him struggling with his attraction to Marion on screen. But I still think that we can see the treatment of Norman on screen as an enforcement of normative masculinity, right? Like Norman is not um, the archetypal straight white male, and that's what makes him monstrous within the discourse of the film. The ending of Psycho, what did you think? I love the ending of Psycho. I liked it. I liked the, the ending last shot and then the part is, where they I think is so such a cool shot. Is so the, like yeah. long single when take, he, yeah. When he's just sitting there with the blanket and like it's narrating like I'll do this that they think uh-huh. this and oh they'll probably notice that I wouldn't even hurt a, oh my god that I wouldn't yeah, even I hurt wouldn't, a fly and line. Then, and the way his <gasps> eyes look is so cool. Oh my god. He does such a good job. Um I didn't like that they had the psychiatrist come in though and like be like this is exactly what's happening because I was like is it though I feel like that's I feel like that's not really what's happening you know like the psychiatrist comes in and says like they're like so he's a like cross-dresser and the psychiatrist is like no my guess is that they had to do that for like like the audience and the code yeah Yeah. I don't think they could have left it open-ended of like Sometimes there's just cross-dressing killers out there. Bye, white America. <laughs> like, <laughs> I think they had to be like, this is a crazy thing for crazy people. And they diagnosed it. We have medicine for it. We have lithium for it. Um, <laughs> we have, oh my God. Um, well, because, yeah, because he also in that scene says, like, you know, he kills the women he desires because he's ashamed about desiring women because of his mom. And, like, again... Yeah, that's a read, but... (laughs) But I don't think that, like... Well, this gets into the the gay discussion. I don't think that... I don't think that he does desire those women. There was something I was thinking about, which was... I'm curious if the reason why it seems... His performance particularly seems so gay um, when you watch it now is because at the time they didn't have the they weren't able because of regulations like they weren't able to do like to portray it in the way that this they make it seem like Like, it doesn't ever seem like lust when he's like peeping on the women it seems like curiosity um 
Yeah. Which... It seems like like he would do that to his mom or his yeah. sister, weirdly enough, because that's just Which what he, he probably does. did. It doesn't feel like... <laughs> Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't seem, feel like he wants to have sex. Yeah, with them. it's it's not like, and maybe, and I was wondering if maybe that's because they weren't able to like show that they weren't able to show him being oh, like oh that like horny. heterosexual. And, sex? Yeah, you know what I mean. Okay, because they would have. Because like today, they had to keep if they extremely wanted him to be horny watching, he'd have to be like yeah, masturbating he would, or you would hear him masturbating at least, or he would be you would hear yeah. like the heavy breathing. They would have a way of showing that like oh I'm killing you because I want to fuck you so badly and I'm repressing so many things. But I think back then, possibly, it was a thing of like, we can't show that. So he's just literally like, it's kind of like how, <laughs> it's kind of like how in like Christian movies, when someone has a porn addiction, they just like sit in front of the porn and are like, this is nice. <laughs> when you're like, do you like porn? <laughs> like, it's very weird. <laughs> Where they just like sort of like in fireproof, he just like sits in front of it and is like, like nodding to it <laughs> it's like i don't think you like because porn that's what you that do when much. you watch porn um because they don't want to actually show that um right because there's also a lot of choices in there that i'm like this seems gay right so i wonder if it is like i wonder how much is that because i'm sure part of it is that but like um so in the psycho was originally a novel i think and in the novelization the ant uh the norman bates character is totally different like with norman bates as anthony perkins it's kind of a twist <laughs> that he's the the killer and that he's like oh, not yeah. super stable because he seems ca- like, uh, like a you know like a nice boy. person yeah, nice boy. right but in the novel he's like a middle-aged man he's kind of overweight he's not like that kind of young like almost naive kind of vibe yeah. that you know what i mean like it's and I think that that choice to make him, like you were saying, like more of like the like sissy villain type of character to me seems like we're trying to make him seem a little bit gay. Yeah. That, I mean, well, also, like you mentioned before, that Hitchcock had a history of casting queer actors in his films. So I think that's also like, I think that was probably oh. intentional that he chose Anthony also, Perkins and not like marlon brando if he was alive at the time i don't know (laughs) i think so (laughs) (laughs) i was reading like a biography of anthony perkins written by someone who like knew him growing up it was like published in like the 90s or something it's kind of old it was saying that he like like anthony perkins talked about being kind of similar to norman bates in a lot of ways like he did have a he didn't i don't i think his dad died or left when he was young he was really close with his mom and like he was supposedly very nervous and uncomfortable around women and he had only been with men until like his like late 30s or something when he started having sex with women as well and then he ended up getting married to one um but and supposedly he also like like voluntarily I think in his like 30s or something went to some form of like don't be gay therapy you know what i mean yeah um so like he was very conflicted about his own sexuality like it was yeah anyway so yeah he had a lot of like personal similarities to norman bates um as a character um oh i want to talk about so the scene that to me feels like it's really pointing to like like aside from all of the like 
Well, it was a thing in, like, the 1960s, right? You were saying this, like, with um, the whole idea that, like, if you were closer to your mom than your dad, like, it was, like, some weird Freudian idea that meant you were gay or something. Oh. That was a thing, right? Yeah, no, it was a huge thing in, I don't know if it started in the 60s or if that's just... I think it started before yeah, that. Yeah, I assume. Um, but, yeah, I think it was connected with, it was either Freudian or connected with Freud that the idea that if you had a very close relationship with your mother, you were going to end up being gay because it was like you were trying to emulate your mother and become your mother, which is what they thought the gay people were. Which is literally what happened. And they thought that like if you were close with your dad, that meant that you were more likely to become like an ideal straight man. Like I think that it's right. interesting that that was the idea was that if you were close with your mom that meant that you were more likely to be gay because it seems like via freud that would make you very straight if you were obsessed with your mom um (laughs) (laughs) but i guess they were probably thinking of it as like she's a feminizing influence right like you you become a woman which is what people thought gay men were back then (laughs) so the scene i was like when i was watching it i was looking for like scenes that i thought like pointed to a reading of him as like intentionally coded as some kind of like queer figure and the scene where he's talking to is that our main girl's name marion yes the scene where so like we've talked about how interesting it is that he kills off his his leading lady like his main character halfway through the movie which is a very bold Mm -hmm. move but like there's so much building up to when she finally gets to bates motel like she has three kind of encounters before that with different men that seem pretty predatory. So, like, the guy at the office, right, who's like, hey there, doll face, I've got all this money. Do you want to see all this money? The money that she ends up stealing. You know what uh-huh. I mean? So there's him. Then she has when she's driving and she's, like, alone on the road and she has this really creepy run-in with this cop who's wearing, like, aviator sunglasses and is very, like, masculine and he's, like, suspicious of her. And then she has the car salesman run in, which is, like, it's less over, but he definitely is treating her like, hey there, little lady, you want to buy an automobile? You know what yeah, I like, mean? Yeah, does your husband um, know you have here? <laughs> yeah, that kind of vibe. And she's very suspicious as, like, a woman traveling alone. And then she's, like, and, like, you feel like she's very much in danger. The whole time, All of yeah. those times. In some, but like it's specifically a kind of like sexual danger, like especially with the cop when he pulls her over on the side of the road and no one's around. Like I was very worried for her when he pulled her out. You know what I mean? Like that was like oh, oh no, it's definitely nobody's around. Well, yeah, because also back then, like a woman going anywhere on her own was still like in itself kind of a yeah. horror movie. <laughs> yeah. So like that scene, I was like, oh no, I feel like he's going to like attempt to assault her or something bad's gonna happen also and like the and sm- a small and- town cop too like you can you know oh yeah, yeah yeah and then when she gets to the bates motel and she ha- meets uh norman i don't feel like he definitely seems weird but i don't feel like oh my god he is going to assault her you know what i mean yeah and then they have that scene where he where they eat food in his parlor <laughs> And with all the stuffed birds on the wall. Yeah, the birds are important. And, (laughs) yeah, and he, like, compares her to a bird. He says she eats like a bird. And he talks about why he stuffs the birds. And he's like, yeah, I stuff birds. He's like, I don't really like birds. (laughs) He was like, I just like stuffing things. 
but I could never stuff like a dog or a cat or a cheetah because that would not that would be cruel essentially he's like I stuff the birds because they just seem so passive and I was like oh that's so interesting because aside from the male detective he kills kind of because he has yeah, to more of a to protect himself kind of thing right he's killing women and I don't think it's like the psychiatrist says at the end because he desires no. them but like because they are to him like he needs to kill things <laughs> because he likes to kill things but like he has to kill something that he doesn't feel that bad about killing yeah. like a woman is well, passive it's also, she's the bird <laughs> he doesn't feel emotionally anything for women like right. he doesn't he's not like in awe of women it's not like oh this is so beautiful i don't want anyone else to have you kind of thing like he literally yeah. has no emotional connection one way or the other to women which tying yeah. into just gay community in general i think like is a very common thing of just like gay men the reason why a lot of gay men are chauvinistic towards women is because they don't really have an emotional connection or empathy for women um which yeah. leads to a lot of like weird behavior with that <laughs> we're all norman yeah. bates i guess is what i'm saying <laughs> um but i definitely yeah i think that's a really interesting comparison and then you also can tie in like the very obvious image of he's imp- like stuffing birds the idea of like capturing birds and uh, aren't some of the stuffed birds in cages as well I can't remember. They might be. I feel like no, but maybe. I can't remember. Oh, but that is that is the part where he does talk about how we're all uh, such a guy. We're all in our own private tracks. Yeah, exactly. Which easily can be read into a repression gay thing. Yeah. And he specifically says, like, we're kind of born into our... He said, like, I was born into my trap. And it sounds like a, like... Like, I'm gay. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, and I mean, uh, on paper, it could be more of I was born into this weird, messed up relationship with my family and my mother. Um, and, like, the reason – I mean, the whole thing is kind of about how Bates Motel is his own prison. And he's just, like, yeah. coming into contact with people that are basically, like, visiting his prison. Um, yeah. He's, like, in kind of like a purgatory. Right. But also, you know – it's easy to, because the idea of being in your own prison and being able, and trapped in your own body is such a huge thing in, like, queer narratives. I also, I personally, so when I watched Psycho for the first time, I did think that there is, because it reads, I always think of the scene where he's looking through, like, the peephole, um... Yeah, you've referenced that a lot. Well, because it is a good scene, I think though. it's so interesting because the way that it's shot and the way that it looks at her, it really doesn't feel like like lust to me, especially... Even though I think she's in, like, a black lace bra, but it doesn't feel particularly sexy. Well, it very like, much... Like, the scene itself doesn't. For me, watching the film, I was like, oh, this... I totally can see this through the lens of, like sort of the way that gay men are fascinated with women's bodies from a standard of, like, beauty rather than sexual attraction. Like, aesthetic. he seems, like, fascinated with the aesthetic of her. And then later, you know, when he kills her in the shower, there's never, like... Which is such a good scene. But there's never, like, it would be so easy in that kind of a scene to shoot it with, like, an implied rape or an implied, like... The stabbing looks like penetration or some kind of thing like that. And it never is shot that way, which would have been so well, subtle and easy to do. Um, 
And that's, but that's normally a part of slasher too, is like, well, because what is it like on like criminal minds and everything? Whenever a woman is killed by being stabbed, they're always like, oh, so the killer was impotent or whatever. Because yeah, like normally stabbing is like kind of a metaphor for rape. But you're right, in Psycho, it doesn't even really show, like in later like 1980s slashers, it's definitely more so shown like that. Mm-hmm. but in psycho in 1960 it is not like i don't even think you really even see like like there's not that obsession with like the knife you know what i mean yeah whereas in later slashers it's obsessed with like this image of the knife going into the body yeah. whereas in this it's there not. isn't like, a whole lot of it. phallic imagery in no. psycho at all which i think that if it was a narrative about like a straight man being so repressed by his sexual aggression that he has to end up killing women to like well and invents a whole character of his disapproving mother because he feels so guilty like i think if that were the case and it wasn't meant to be read with sort of a queer you know um lens lens, i think that that would be a lot more prominent in a movie literally about a man lusting after women in his motel and then stabbing them (laughs) in the shower Yeah. (laughs) Um, yeah um yeah but like i always think of that people scene because i'm like oh this is totally the way that um gay men like view pops like feminine um pop like, stars uh, and icons and like the way that like a, a gay man either is like super curious or um a fan of like obsessions with like madonna yeah. and lady gaga or judy garland or maybe even ariana grande yeah like, it's weird. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Like, a fascination with female sexuality, but in a completely, like, ambivalent and platonic way is interesting. Yeah. But that's kind of how I yeah. immediately see Anthony Perkins' portrayal in Psycho. And I'm not sure if that's just me yeah. reading my own experiences into it. But, v- like, with the camera shots, it definitely doesn't seem super sexy and i don't know if that's because of the restrictions they had at the time or if that's a deliberate choice by i keep wanting to say anthony hopkins because he played hitchcock Um, (laughs) i know i wanted to say that too (laughs) by a a deliberate decision by hitchcock i mean i would lean more toward it's a deliberate decision because i feel like hitchcock is a talented enough filmmaker that if he wanted to show like i mean okay wait did hitchcock direct north by northwest yes Okay, I mean, there's that scene in North by Northwest where Cary Grant and the female lead make out, and then the next shot is a train going through a tunnel. Oh my god, yeah. The most hilarious, like, sex image ever in film, and it's so obvious that it's, like, stupid and funny. But, like, I feel like Hitchcock is, like, a talented enough filmmaker that if he wanted to convey that, like, Anthony Perkins is getting off, or I... Norman Bates is getting off on this. I think he could have. You know what yeah, I mean? I mean, he Even was with smart the code enough. regulations in place. I think, yeah, like maybe if it was, like, I think he was a talented enough filmmaker to where if he wanted to do that, he could do another, like, train tunnel situation. Or just use, <laughs> where we're like, like we're talking oh, about with, like, phallic imagery. <laughs> like, he definitely could have suggested that kind of thing, even if he didn't want to show Anthony Perkins literally popping a boner when he sees. <laughs> <laughs> Janet Lee. <laughs> yeah, so he, I think he could have if he wanted to, and I think that the fact that, because yeah, that scene does stick out to me too. Psycho is such a sexless movie, and I think that's yes. worth pointing out, given the fact that it's and literally it about a motel. A sexy movie. Yeah, on paper, it's the sex, I mean, on in paper. a gross way, it's like the sexiest movie. 
Um, yeah, in like a really but the way it's shot, way, it's so it's very sexy. Like, clinical and sexless. Mm-hmm. It's really yeah. interesting. Like again, like even the shower scene, like it's not like there's blood running down her boobs. You know what I and mean? And before like, it's like she comes in to get killed, it's not like swelling strings as she like gets her big tonkas out. She's not like, <laughs> like soaping yeah. up or anything. She's not like, yeah, uh, like, like you know, sensual showering in old movies where they're like, like mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's not like that. It's not like a sexy scene no. gone wrong implied rape scene. You know, it's like a very clinical stab, stab, stab. It's like she's in the shower and what you're supposed to understand from that is that she feels relaxed and comfortable and she's made a decision and she has no idea what's coming. Yeah. It's not like, Oh, look how hot Janet Lee is. Yeah. Um, which it could have been. And yeah, like you were saying, like it when you read this on paper, like, yeah, that's what you would assume this movie is. But Especially it's not because at all. the whole style of Psycho and really what it pioneered was that voyeuristic thing. It's weird to see a voyeuristic. Yeah, like, that's part of a thriller yeah. too. Is it's it's weird sexual. to see a, which what became a huge thing later with movies like um Friday the thirteenth. I mean not Friday the thirteenth. Became a big thing with movies that are like Halloween, which is such a sexual movie. Like every voyeuristic shot you see of the killer going to kill people. Watching. Boobs are completely out. People are having sex. Like it's, that's Mm -hmm. what a voyeuristic movie typically is. But in Psycho, it's so sexless, which is really interesting. Yeah. 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 Because people like to, this is the part that I was going to have us do earlier, but I guess we can do now. Um, people like to divide the slasher history into three periods. The one was like the early slasher. So people, a lot of people say that Psycho is the first slasher. And then the second period is like started with Halloween in 1978. And it's like that 1978 to mid 80s, like suburban nightmare slasher is, yeah, like slasher becomes not so much rural. It becomes more suburban or like they're in a camp or something and then it's also like that's when all the rules about sex came in right like if you have sex you die our final girl is always like a virgin and like all of this um and that's when they really did play up because like the early ones like psycho did have the same kind of like stalker killer figure and they play up the sexualization of that in the 80s ones and then there was the 90s with like Wes craven and scream where it's like a postmodern like meta yeah deconstruction but anyway um what? I was just saying deconstruction. Right. Like a kind of fun deconstruction of all of that. But yeah, like it is interesting that the like unsexual psycho was translated into like the highly sexualized teen slasher film. And basically every voyeuristic film is so sexual because that's such yes. an implied sexual thing. Like that would be the reason for voyeurism. Um so I yeah. think it is like definitely a deliberate choice that it reads as he's not connecting. Well, and also he's not connecting with her at all. You know, they yeah, never have that's... a moment of chemistry or like uncomfortable chemistry. It's never like an implied like he could rape her at any moment kind of thing. Um, no. It reads as two people like having zero emotional connection to each other at all because like they aren't able to. <laughs> Which would yeah. make sense if it was an awkward, psychotic gay man talking to a, you know, woman. And it does come, again, like, after she's had interactions with three different men. Who like, were so Or actually masculine four, counting her boyfriend. typical, yeah. straight, dangerous right. 
vibes, yeah. And you see how, you also see how, like, oh, this is how, like, if we include her boyfriend force, like, this is how men typically interact with this woman. This is what she is used to and what she knows how to navigate. Mm -hmm. And that's why the scenes with Norman Bates are so uncomfortable because, like, well, A, like, you know he is the kind of wild card in this scenario because she's never interacted with a man who, like, is not into her i guess because she's janet lee i don't well, know like it's a very like uncomfortable lack of connection it's also kind of a cool commentary on the fact that like clearly the whole reason she keeps having these weird inter- interactions with men is like upping the stakes of she's not safe anywhere she goes she's not even safe right, in her own yeah. shower like she's not safe on the road she's not yeah. safe in public she's not safe in a motel she's not safe in her own shower at her job as a woman she's always in danger which is a cool thing to show yeah. in a film and kind of a progressive thing to put in a film that was so old. But it's also kind of a cool commentary yeah. of like, oh, you're not safe from straight men and you're also not safe from gay men. Like you face danger and sexism and chauvinism from every in sexuality every as a woman in America. All the time. <laughs> like, Good luck. It's a cool little parallel there of like, not only are you not safe anywhere you go, you're also not safe from any kind of man. <laughs> Okay, so I want to close our discussion of Psycho with an excerpt from an interview with Anthony Perkins and Bobby Wygant. She was a talk show host in the 80s. So this interview was right before the release of Psycho 2 in 1983. It's 23 years after the first Psycho was released. So a lot had changed in America and the world, but also in Anthony Perkins' own life. And I think that in this interview, based on how Anthony Perkins talks about identifying with and disidentifying with Norman Bates at different points in his life, I think that that makes a really good case for reading Norman Bates as a queer character or as a character that queer audiences can easily identify with. When you did the first psycho did that help or hurt your career well it it hurt it in that people started associating me with that kind of role it helped it because people could rather than saying uh, oh here comes what's his name down the street they were able to put a name to the face so it did both those things and what do you think psycho 2 will do to your career well, I, I've long since tried to forget about disassociating myself with the uh, specter of Norman Bates. So I, I've got to give into that rather than resist it. It doesn't bother me anymore. I have more confidence in myself uh, now, that, uh, now that I'm older and uh, have a family. I, I don't feel quite so um, remote and alone in the world as Norman did. I feel uh, more a part of uh, the world. I think that this interview is really interesting because Perkins talks about how he used to feel at least somewhat similar to Norman Bates when he was younger, that like Norman, he felt remote and alone in the world. And he says that he feels less so now that he's older, but also now that he is married and has a family, because with that comes a certain kind of stability. And I think that the way that Perkins points out how he maybe 
had more similarities to Norman when he was younger and has fewer similarities to Norman now is based partially on whether or not Perkins was in a heterosexual relationship at the time. So like I mentioned earlier, Perkins supposedly didn't start dating or having sex with women until his mid to late 30s, and before that he only dated men. So during the filming of Psycho, and for about 10 years after that, Perkins was only in queer relationships. And he says in this interview that, like, now he has a family, and I mean, he doesn't say it, but it's a specifically heterosexual family unit, that now that he's in this position, he feels like he's more a part of the world, which is super sad, but also really reflective of how things were in the 60s and the 80s, where being queer or in queer relationships was something that did isolate you. And I think that Perkins' own identifications with Norman Bates when he was younger and was dating men, and the way that he says that he's not really similar to Norman at all anymore after marrying a woman, I think that does suggest a reading of Norman as queer in some way. Okay, so we're going to watch a clip from A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge. <laughs> Jesus Christ! You scared the shit out of me, man. Hey, what are you doing? Hey, what the fuck are you doing in my room? Listen, I'm in trouble. I need you to let me stay here tonight. Are you out of your mind? I don't know. Oh, man. Why don't you just go home and take a bottle of sleeping pills? I killed Snyder. You what? Only it wasn't me, see? There's something inside of me. And last night it made me go to my sister's room. And tonight with Lisa on the cabana, it started to happen again. I think you are seriously losing it, bro. I'm scared, Grady. Something is trying to get inside my body. Yeah, and she's female, and she's waiting for you in the cabana. And you want to sleep with me. Look, I don't care if you believe me or not. Hey, I believe you. You've had some scary dreams, okay? No. I don't. No. I'm all messed up. What difference does it make? I'm in trouble, and I need you to help me. Okay? All right, man, what do you want me to do? Just watch me. And if anything starts to happen, like I start to act weird, or start dreaming weird, or try to walk out of here, you gotta stop me. I don't care if you have to hit me over the head, just don't let me leave. And Grady, don't fall asleep. Okay, so that was a scene between Jesse, our lead character played by Mark Patton, and Grady, a boy in Jesse's class, who Jesse's like friends with. Um, 
So Nightmare on Elm Street 2 is the 1985 sequel to the 1984 slasher Nightmare on Elm Street, which was written and directed by Wes Craven. Nightmare 2 had a new director, Jack Shoulder, and a new screenwriter, David Chaskin. So the first Nightmare film is usually referenced as like one of the best horror films ever made. Um, like, like people love it. So Nightmare 2 had a lot to live up to and really does not deliver. So basically the only things Nightmare 2 has in common with Nightmare 1 is the villain. The villain is Freddy Krueger, played by Robert England. Uh, in Nightmare 1, Freddy attacks teenagers through their dreams while they're asleep. And later it's revealed that Freddy is the ghost of a man who used to live on Elm Street and he like would murder children and it's kind of suggested that he was also a pedophile but I don't know if that's ever like explicitly stated. Anyway, Freddy Krueger was burned to death by the parents of the teenagers that his ghost is currently like attacking slash haunting. So Nightmare 2 is different because it's a possession film. So Freddy is possessing the body of a high school boy named Jesse, played by Mark Patton in his first role as a leading man. Jesse is having dreams about Freddy, but they're not really like the dreams of the kids in Nightmare 1, because in these dreams, Freddy is like taunting and talking to Jesse, and he's not always like hurting him necessarily. Jesse always wakes up from these dreams, like covered in sweat and screaming. Um, Jesse's family has just moved into the house that the protagonist of Nightmare 1 used to live in. And Jesse has a, like, sort of girlfriend. Her name is Lisa. She's the literal girl next door. Um, but even though she, like, really wants to move their relationship forward with, like, relationship labels and sex, he's really hesitant to do any of those things with her. Um, and it's unclear if it's because he's, like, shy or, like, because he doesn't want to. Um, so at school and his, like, first day or whatever, Jesse gets into a wrestling fight with another boy. Uh, the boy's name is Grady. This is the boy from the clip earlier in the fight. Grady, like, pulls Jesse's pants down. And they're, like, rolling around on a baseball field. <laughs> and Jesse is, like, is naked halfway. Um, which I guess is something boys do for fun. And it's, like, not gay? I don't know. Anyway, their coach, like, punishes them by making them do, like, push-ups or planks or something. And they become friends while they're doing whatever physical exercise punishment the coach made them do. And while they're doing that, Grady tells Jesse that their coach goes to, like, gay S&M bars and is, like, a dom and stuff. Um, so Jesse is afraid to go to sleep because in his dreams, Freddy's telling him that, like, Jesse's gonna kill people. And then when Jesse's awake, like, weird things start happening. Or whenever he's around, like, lights will go out or fires will start. And there's this one sequence where, like, Jesse's family's pet bird, like, goes crazy. And I think it, like, ends up exploding in flames. It's ridiculous and amazing. Um, but anyway, Freddy, like... He kind of possesses Jesse's mind-ish. I don't know. Freddy's powers in this movie are really unclear. He seems to kind of like be able to do anything he wants to do, basically. So anyway, Freddy possesses Jesse's mind <laughs> to go to this queer S&M bar with like a bunch of leather daddies and stuff. And Jesse sees his coach there and the coach is wearing like a leather harness outfit thing. And the coach tells Jesse that like Jesse shouldn't be there. And <laughs> Okay. I guess, like, school and, like, teacher-student relationships worked differently in 1985 because this coach, like, takes Jesse to the school, like, at night 
to like punish him for going to the S&M bar and he like makes Jesse run laps and it's really strange. But anyway, Freddy telekinetically invisibly locks a bunch of doors so the coach can't leave. And then Freddy like ties the coach up naked in the showers and spanks him with a wet towel. And then Freddy like possesses Jesse's body and then murders the coach. Um, and then Jesse's like really freaked out when he gets his body back and he's himself again, but he's like not caught for the crime or whatever. Um, so then at Jesse's girlfriend's pool party, Jesse's girlfriend, Lisa, uh, tries to have sex with him in like the pool house thing, which is a really bold move. I mean, good for her. Um, but Jesse feels Freddy like start to possess him and then he freaks out and he runs away and he runs to his friend Grady's room. They have the interaction that we watched the clip of earlier and then Jesse and Grady fall asleep. Freddy possesses Jesse. Okay, so when Freddy possesses Jesse, like Jesse will literally turn into Freddy. So, um, like his hands will start to like split and like grow knife claws, like Freddy's knife claws. And then in this scene where he's in Grady's room, um, Freddy's head like eats its way out of Jesse's stomach. It's like very bizarre. <laughs> it makes no sense, but whatever. It's what happens. So Freddy takes over Jesse's body and Jesse literally turns into Freddy and Freddy then murders Grady and he like stabs him through with his claws and it's very like penetrative. Um, so Jesse is like really, really upset because he's basically in love with Grady. Anyway, he runs to Lisa, his girlfriend, sort of, and he tells her that Freddy, oh, this is the famous line where Jesse says like, he's inside me and he's gonna take me again because he's telling her that like Freddy's inside him and that Freddy's taken over his body. So then Freddy does take over Jesse's body again. So Jesse turns into Freddy. <laughs> um, and then Lisa and Freddy like fight it out for a really long time. But Lisa doesn't want to like kill Jesse and she knows he's still inside this like demon monster thing. And Lisa tells Jesse that she loves him. And then I guess her love like melts Freddy. <laughs> because Freddy melts and Jesse emerges from a melted Freddy body. <laughs> And it's, it's incredible. Um, and then it seems like everything is fine and Jesse can be with Lisa just like he was always meant to be. But then in the last scene, you find out that Jesse is still having nightmares about Freddy. And then the film ends. So um, a couple weeks ago, a documentary came out called Scream Queen, My Nightmare on Elm Street. And it's about Mark Patton, again, plays Jesse and his experience filming Nightmare 2 and all of the like homophobic backlash that came with being like a young closeted gay HIV positive actor in a subtextually gay or textually honestly I don't really think of it as subtext in this movie it's pretty obvious um but being in a in a movie with gay themes in the mid 80s during the AIDS crisis and I really recommend watching the documentary. It's, it's on Amazon right now, and it's super interesting. I reference it a couple times in this episode because I think that Patton's experiences with this film and the way that he was sort of like, quote unquote, like blamed by the film's screenwriter for this film having any kind of like gay themes and how he was like gaslit for years during a period of time that was like, really 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 difficult for gay people I think that 
like all of that is an integral part of Nightmare on Elm Street 2 as a film. Honestly, I find this movie interesting more because it's so gay, but almost everyone involved in making it pretended it wasn't and gaslit Mark Patton for years. Um, I'm more interested in all of that than I am in the film's actual narrative because, again, it's, like, not actually a very good movie. Like, it's pretty boring. Um, but, yeah. So, check out My Nightmare on Elm Street. The documentary. Yeah, what do you want to say about Nightmare 2? <laughs> um, it's not a good movie. <laughs> but... <laughs> It's, it really th- is not very good. I think it's interesting because, like, kind of like we were talking about, where, like, there's a lot of, there's a lot of themes of, like, repression of, you know, s- things that society views as deplorable or disgusting in horror movies and particularly slasher movies. And then through the violence and the conflict, that sort of rises to the surface. So that's always sort of a theme in slasher. I think it's interesting to see Nightmare on Elm Street 2 because it takes that theme and makes it so explicit but particularly with tying it into being a a gay boy in america in the 80s um during the aids epidemic or AIDS dur- crisis. yeah right during the aids which i do also think it's really interesting oh, there's so much to talk about with this i don't wait know where okay to i actually do have a thing to say about this okay, so I found an interview with the screenwriter, David Chaskin. So the whole thing with Mark Patton and the screenwriter and the director is that the movie is very obviously written, filmed, and performed as about being gay and being scared of that. Uh (laughs) Um, But the screenwriter supposedly blamed Mark Patton, the lead actor who plays Jesse, for the film being homoerotic at all and he said that like essentially Mark Patton was just too gay to be in a story and yeah anyway so everyone kind of blamed Patton for the film being queer because for some reason after making and writing a queer film they then didn't want it to be seen as a queer film I guess because it was the 80s so then yeah I mean they all wanted to work in Hollywood still (laughs) yeah so the director I think to this day so they just made a documentary about mark patton's experience called my nightmare or called scream queen my nightmare on elm street the director of the film still to this day like denies that he knew that there was any kind of gay subtext despite them filming at a gay snm club and also <laughs> um, he like, pretends that he didn't real know gay bar too yeah no it's like an actual i'm pretty sure it is an actual yeah like, like they went S&M. on site <laughs> <laughs> yeah and there are like leather daddies and stuff but yeah mm-hmm. he's like no i had no idea and then the screenwriter for a long time screenwriter is david chaskin he denied that it was ever gay and then in okay so i found this 2007 interview with um bloody good horror <laughs> where is an interview with david chaskin where he says um They ask him about how this film is kind of, like, famous or infamous for, like, homoeroticism. And he says, yes, there was certainly some intentional subtext, but it was intended to play homophobic rather than homoerotic. I thought about the demographics for these types of films, young heterosexual males, and tried to imagine what kinds of things would truly frighten them to the core. And scary dreams that make them, even momentarily, question their own sexuality seemed like a slam dunk to me. 
which I thought was yeah. very interesting. Well, I think that's interesting. I think he's sidestepping it a little bit because that also plays into the idea of what you're terrified of when you're coming out. Like, that's kind of yes admitting that you made a movie about coming out without admitting that you made a movie about coming out because it's like, yeah, that would be a thing that is terrifying to realize, but that's also the movie. Like, the whole point of the movie is that well, because I don't horrified by the fact that he's gay. And he says, like, this is something that's terrifying for young heterosexual men. And the thing is, is I don't think that that's terrifying for heterosexual men. I think it's terrifying for bisexual and pansexual and gay men. But I don't think it's terrifying for heterosexual men because they're like... That was weird. uh, They they (laughs) just don't think of themselves. Like, you know what I mean? Like, they're not attracted to men. So a world in which someone's like what if you were attracted to men doesn't really have that much of an impact on them. Right. I like, guess, I, think I don't if know. A, if a heterosexual man had a dream about a guy in a sexual context, they would wake up and be like, that was weird and not gratifying to me. Like, that's not right. scary. But if you yeah. were slightly gratified by that dream, or if you go in your head and wonder why you keep having dreams about why did your I have coach that getting yeah. tied up and whipped... <laughs> Um, in the showers at your school. As, like, fully naked, yeah. Fully naked. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a lot more of a terrifying thing to have to reckon with if you are gay or bi or pan. Also, I just feel like we need to comment on how he's, this is all about dreams, right? And mm-hmm. he's having these dreams and Freddy's in them. But the house, oh, they say that the house is just really hot because <laughs> their AC is broken. But every time he wakes up, he is, like, covered in sweat. And I'm like, this is, like, the least subtle way of saying he had a wet dream that I have ever seen. Oh, <laughs> like, yeah. He's literally, like, fully, there's, like, physically wet. There's lines <laughs> like, about, like, body. your sheets are soaked. <laughs> the bed is soaked. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's, yeah, it's and, real like, on the nose. They have lines about that, but they don't even need to say that because, like, you just look at him and it's like he just jumped in a pool. Like, he's soaking wet. Also, I don't like, know if it's just, yeah. like, an 80s style thing, but, like, the evolution of outfits in the film of him waking up with his, like, naked chest heaving, he will be oh, in, like, he starts he'll be to take his shirt off more and more. He'll have a, a button down, but it'll have only be on, like, one button. He'll be, like, in He doesn't button his and, shirt like, ever. Yeah, like, it's insane. Like, and I'm like, I don't think this is just an 80s, like, aesthetic thing. I think it <laughs> might also be how many times can we show his, like, glistening chest unbuttoned <laughs> in a shirt. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it's also just, like, I mean, everyone references that scene where he's, like, dancing and, like, like there's a close-up shot of his butt closing a drawer and, like, he's singing oh. into some phallic-shaped object, pretending it's a microphone. He, like, yeah. puts it over his crotch at one point. And it looks like and he's masturbating, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, it's also, I mean, it's also, we haven't said it yet, but it's worth commenting on. It's almost non-existent to have a male character as the hero of a slasher film oh right as our scream queen slash final boy like that almost never happens i can't (gasps) think of another movie that that's the case in right now wait and your point about earlier about the virgin and the slasher film and like queer virginity yeah because there's this whole scene where he 
he was trying to have sex with his girlfriend, but Freddy starts to come out of him. Mm-hmm. The gay starts to come out of his body. And he freaks out. So he out. can't have sex with his girlfriend, and he freaks out, and he goes to hang out with his really attractive jock friend, and it's like, yeah, and that is that is why he's a Well, every time he gets close with the girl or interacts with the girl, something like that happens. But even <laughs> beyond that, like, with the whole narrative of the final girl slash boy in a slasher is like the virgin this one has so many like sexually explicit lines that equate like the slashing violence to sex and like penetration where he'll be like he's taking me he's inside me or um freddie will like whisper things in his ear and lick his ear things like that all the time or like taunting him like in a very sexual way there's I think that here's the real here's the real t- tea sis honey slay. All right. <laughs> um, I think that it would be really interesting for like a BDSM expert to do a like a dom sub reading of yes of, of Freddie and Jesse because it's Freddie and Jesse have such a little BDSM dom sub relationship. They do. It's really in- like especially with the specific lines that are chosen. Um, yeah, I think that dynamic would be really interesting. So for someone yeah. to like, yeah, for people and I mean, to they're definitely that it's like, not gay is insane. <laughs> well, because they're definitely leading into it. I mean, to have not just their football coach be gay, but to have him be like specifically like a leather daddy at like the gay S&M joint. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like they're definitely leaning into that. And I think that that was partly because a lot of the times in the 1980s being gay was seen as like you were always like a dom-sub relationship, which is not actually oh, accurate. Yeah. It's like a weird homophobic well, thing. Well, it's still a thing now where people will equate gay as an orientation with a sexual like kink. kink. Yeah. Right. Because and that's like, how we've been programmed and propagandized to think about gay people. Yeah. But I do think, like you're saying, like uh, a BDSM gay like retelling of Nightmare on Elm Street 2 that's more openly leaning into that in a less homophobic way would actually be really interesting. Well, because there's such a force in like dominance and who's going to take dominance over his oh, body yeah. is such a big part of the movie. Like the conflict over yeah. like who has control over his body. Um, it's a huge part of the movie before yeah. he really gets like possessed by Freddy or whatever. <laughs> and there's this whole like subplot where like or I guess not subplot it's part of the main plot where like the girlfriend the like pretty girl next door is like like her love is supposed to save him from Freddy and it feels very yeah. like conversion therapy <laughs> like if only he could just settle down with the girl next door he could get rid of this like murderous gay demon inside of him yeah like she's the perfect girl for him they would have a perfect little this would be a perfect little 16 candles high school romance mm. if not for the monster underneath his bed the monster inside Slash him in his closet <laughs> <laughs> got it Did oh it? that was good, good. yeah that Thank was good <laughs> publish <laughs> there actually is a book called monsters in the closet homosexuality in the horror film so oh damn it <laughs> sorry it's already literally been published <laughs> well i came up with it first <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah <laughs> I mean I think we need to we've sort of mentioned it but I think we need to talk about the two most important relationships in the film besides him and Freddie is him and his male friend and his female friend 
Um, his female friend being like his girlfriend. Yes, his girlfriend slash and Her girlfriend his wannabe. hot boyfriend. Um, it's, okay, yeah. It's worth pointing out because the friendship dynamic is not really a common thing that has any storyline whatsoever in slasher films slash horror films like it's not very common for you to get an arc of like how i met my friend how we became friends how he's my best friend that i go to in a time of need like that's not really a thing (laughs) that you get in slasher films um and i think it's very intentional just like cannon fodder yeah like you're just waiting the whole like you're just a body so that they can get murdered and contribute to the body count the friend is uh it's like your sassy best friend from birth they have little one-liners and then they get killed unceremoniously. Oh, they're always urging you to have sex, blah, blah, blah. That's not really a thing oh, that yeah. happens in this film. Like, it's he meets this guy. They have a weird, like, my dick is bigger than your dick kind of competition. They, like, have a, like, literal tussle on the football field. Tussle they get, as in fight, not as in sex, where they, he pulls down uh, Jesse's pants. pants. And there's, like, an, like an ass shot of, like, Jesse's butt. <laughs> but it's also, it's very much... I don't know if this is just the way I read it, but there does seem like a framing of like the pulling the pigtails of the person who you like. Oh yeah, they're immediately drawn to each other. They're immediately drawn to each other in a way that isn't explained, other than like sometimes boys are violent (laughs) with each other for no reason. Um, Yeah, they literally get punished together by their BDSM gay coach. By their BDSM gay coach, yeah. As he watches multiple times too, and that's a bonding experience for them. Um, also it feels like they have more chemistry than he does with his very pretty girlfriend yes like she's very bland in comparison to that relationship also arguably as much if not more screen time yeah you're right which is again until very weird until like the end when the boy is killed by freddie and the girl is like fighting for. I mean, her final her screen scene time doesn't picks count. Up. Yeah, <laughs> her final scene is so unnecessarily long. I got so bored. <laughs> but anyway, I think it would have um, been interesting if, for the narrative of like she has to save him. I think it would have been interesting if the best she friend has to kill him was the one who was becoming Freddie, and he was falling in love with the gay best friend who was also becoming Freddie, and then she has oh. to kill the Freddie gay best friend, and they can live together in a heterosexual happiness. I'm solving this movie oh, too. Oh yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, I think that's a clearer metaphor <laughs> than what Yeah. Happened. But I guess they want him to do the whole, like, ah, oh, the monster's inside me. It's coming out yeah, of me. It's, making, they wanted it's to... influencing my decisions with my boring vanilla girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I take Although, it back. She's not vanilla at all. She wanted him to no. fuck her in the pool house. So that's good for No. Her. She has been, like, I was really surprised watching that movie um, because she, like, wants to have sex with him from the beginning it's clearly put in there because he's not having sex with her and she is the one who wants it and she's wondering and feeling insecure about the fact that he's not having sex with her much like a woman dating a gay man would feel (laughs) (laughs) and they need to make it clear that it's not that he's not having sex with her because like she doesn't want to have sex they need to make it clear that like no just so you know she wants to be having sex with him just so you know entirely his decision (laughs) is wanting to have sex so badly that she will do it in a pool house with him he is not having sex with her for some unknown reason. Yeah. It's so gay. Right. How could anyone say this isn't a gay <laughs> movie? <laughs> I think it, like it's worth pointing out how big of a figure the 
best friend is, how, like, he always turns to him whenever he has problems with his girlfriend or if he's in a crisis or if he literally thinks he's going insane and that there's a monster coming out of him. He's going to his guy friend who he just met. Not his girlfriend. His girlfriend who he's romantic smoochy smoochy with. Also. And kills him. The scene. (laughs) Well, the scene. That's what I was going to say is the scene where the best friend dies is actually, like, really, really sad. Like, and Jesse is sad about it. Like, afterward, he's, like, crying a lot in a way that he was, like, he's emotionally affected by that in a way that he's not previously. Like, it was, I thought it was an actual, like, sad scene. Oh, yeah. It's definitely, well, and I'm trying to think There's of how also on like, the nose I want to get with this. Okay. But just, like, the idea of gay torture porn narratives where if there ever were gay people in media in the 80s and 90s it was always a story where they one of them or both of them died at the end because of violence like like kill your gays yeah i'm like it's kind of an interesting like kill your gays trope add in of like that's what happened and there's also like it's his death scene is like very weird too because his parents are on the other side of the door but Oh, in this movie, Freddy has, like, telekinetic powers where he can control everything. (laughs) Does he have that in the first movie? I mean, it's, like, the rules of what Freddy can and can't do are very loose in the franchise. (laughs) (laughs) It kind of changes from movie to movie. In this one, he can just, like, do anything, basically. So, including lock doors so that they can never be unlocked on either side by anyone until Freddy unlocks them. Right. Um. So and also the possess parents... people, which is never a thing later on. <laughs> In the Freddyverse. Yeah. Oh my god, Finn is oh, messing Finn. up my audio. Anyway, so... Oh yeah, the parents are like on the other side of the door, and the kid is like banging on the door being like, Dad, Dad, help, Mom, help. And it is like a weird, like, the gays are coming after your children vibe to me. Yeah. <laughs> because like, they're literally on the other side of the door, and then you see freddy's claws like you don't see the best friend get stabbed but you see freddy's claws go through the door and leave like a blood trail and it's very much like freddy who in this case is the gay man inside of you (laughs) is coming for for your nice son and Mm. you're gonna be just outside the bedroom door and you can't help him from becoming gay (laughs) i do imagine that that's exactly how conservative Christian families see, see <laughs> it, becoming <yeah>. gay. <laughs> Which is like, I think it's interesting that Chaskin said he wrote it as more homophobic than, because there are like, like it does feel like it walks a line between like portraying how it feels and like playing into that. Do you know what I mean? Like saying yeah. this is how it feels and then also saying this is how it is, you know? Does that make sense? Can you say that better than I did? I mean, I think that it's... When I say it's, like, it's a gay movie, I'm not saying it's, like, a Like, a good positive gay, movie. gay movie. Yeah, like, a positive yeah. representation. Like, it's no, about it's definitely, being like, gay. It's clearly influenced by the homophobic lens of, like, we associate being gay with literally being a monster and being a and destructive with, like, monster. Well, also, I've read a lot of stuff, too, about, like, um, horror viscera. Like, that kind of stuff and, like, the depiction of that in the 80s and, like, uh, depictions and ideas about AIDS. So, I think Yeah, that I was going like, to say, yeah, that's exactly what I was about to say. Like, was... Freddy is so disgusting in this movie and, like, mm-hmm. slimy and, like, melting some of the His... time. And I think that they're definitely playing into, like, 
like feeding into like AIDS fear mongering. Which has been always a part of Freddy is that he is a physically gross, but there's sort of like an air of like rotting and decay and disease with him. Yeah. Um, which easily can be tied into like the AIDS fear mongering. Also, I mean, obviously this is, everybody knows this, but blood is how HIV oh, right. is transmitted, which is yeah. a huge for a thing slasher film. for a slasher film to explore where everything is about cutting and knives and open wounds and bleeding and the transfer of blood. Um, yeah. Scenes where people get other people's blood on them reads very differently in a movie written in the AIDS epidemic about yeah. gay characters. Um, yeah. Yeah. Also, like, the scenes where, um, like, the scene, oh, the scene in the bedroom of the boy best friend, the, the male love interest, where Jesse is, like, turning into Freddy, and sometimes, like, how he turns into Freddy is not always shown, but in this scene it's shown, and you see him look at his hands, and they turn into Freddy's, like, I think Freddy looks like, he's supposed to look like... Well, he's a burn victim. The reason why his lair is the boiler room is that that's where he was burned alive by the family, the families. Well, um, so, but the scene where, where which is kind of also, I back into like the trauma thing. I do think that's really cool that like to defeat Freddy, you have to go to the boiler room. Like you have to go to where your parents killed him. Yeah. That's cool. Anyway, Um, continue. No, I was just going to say like the scene where he looks down and he sees his hands turning into Freddy's hands and like it's really like gross like these the claws like pop out of his nails and there's a lot of blood and like split like it's just it's really disgusting and there's like um disgusting and there's like lesions and stuff and mm-hmm. it does seem very much like oh if you were gay you will get this disease and you will die you know what i mean like that definitely yeah. seems like what it's saying like this is a matter um, of time <laughs> which i think is probably why this was such a difficult... I mentioned the the documentary. It's also another uh, way of reading the um, I can't sleep. I always wake up covered in sweat. Yeah. It's getting worse and worse as it goes on. I'm getting more and more tired. Oof. Yeah. Oof. Big oof. Really sad. Um, but I don't know if that's I intentional, that that, but it is like a thing that stands out. Yeah. Well, and I do think that that's probably part of why... So. I mentioned the documentary Scream Queen, My Nightmare on Elm Street about Mark Patton's experience on the film. So Mark Patton, um, he, when, during the filming of this, he was dating another Hollywood actor. I want to say his name was Timothy Murphy. Oh, so Mark Patton was dating Timothy Patrick Murphy, who was an actor in the 80s as well. And Timothy Patrick Murphy actually, um, contracted HIV and died in 1988 when he was only 29 and Mark Patton himself was like uh HIV positive and so I think that that was a big part of like there was all of this homophobic treatment of this film after it came out where everyone was like you know you're the reason this film is gay it's all because of you because you are gay even though he wasn't even out at the time and then at the same time there's this like why like it's not just like the kind of Hollywood homophobia and American homophobia that's around all the time, it's specifically heightened in this period, and it's, like, you're gay, you're diseased, and then, like, for his boyfriend to then, like, pass away, like, kind of in the aftermath of that movie was a really big deal. Um, Because I think this movie came out in 1985. 
So I think that that's a big part of why this was such a, like, scarring and traumatic experience for him. Oh, yeah. I can't imagine that's horrible. Also, because, like, to be a part of a movie like that where on some level, like, you are finally getting to, like, represent a storyline. And I do think that it is an interesting idea for a horror movie to do. Like, so on the nose, like, we're going to do a gay repression killing you narrative um, mm-hmm. to get to be a part of something like that. And I, I imagine it would be extremely traumatic to shoot something like that if you're actively thinking about, like, how that relates to your own life. And then for, yeah. have to have all of this, like, blamed on you when, like, that was not at all <laughs> your fault. Um, right. Yeah. Ugh, like, terrible. it would just be terrifying. And, yeah. yeah. And it was. So we're going to listen to a couple of clips from the documentary that I mentioned earlier, Scream Queen, My Nightmare on Elm Street. And in these clips, Mark Patton talks about his experiences with this film during the AIDS crisis. For me, it was terrifying. I wasn't an out gay actor. There wasn't any such thing as an out gay actor then. In 1985, Hollywood was very homophobic and very AIDS phobic. And when you signed a contract for a television series, they gave you a blood test. So if you were gay, you were hiding. I was feeling a lot of pressure. It gets around to the homosexual stuff all the time, but here I was in this movie. I was gay. My lover was sick. I wake up in the middle of the first movie that I'm the lead actor in and realize that there's a gay subtext in it. And my agents are waiting to see if I can play straight. My agents went to watch the movie and they were like, yeah, you can carry a movie, but we're going to have to make you a character actor because you can't play straight. I don't, do you have any other thoughts on Nightmare 2? I don't, I mostly just want to talk about the bedroom scene with the boyfriend, which we did. Oh, yeah. Um, Oh, the only other thing I want to say is the distant relationship with jesse's dad how jesse's dad is never part of his life and then will suddenly be very aggressive to him and like i can't remember exactly what the line is but he says something like what's wrong with you like why are you this way very much and it's it's so on the nose like yeah him feeling intimidated and wants to distance himself from his son's homosexuality and then direct like very directly aggressive about it about his identity yeah um, that's a big part and how his mom is sort of more like nurturing and how that becomes yes. a point where the dad gets mad at the mom for being nurturing to the gay son instead of be- giving him the tough love. Yeah. It's a huge. The tough masculine love that's going to make a, him straight. Yeah. yeah. That's a huge right. like family dynamic for young gay people. And I think it's, it's, it's so accurate. on the nose, especially the part where yeah. him being like, what's wrong with you? You know? Yeah. Um, no, yeah, that was definitely something that I noticed as I was watching that I was like, yeah. ooh, this feels uncomfortably, like, accurate in kind of a yeah. depressing way, but yeah. Which is why it's frustrating that they, it, at that the they time, they weren't so able long. to take ownership of the movie that they made, because it's clearly yeah. so, like, some parts of it are so accurate, you know? Yeah, it really sucks that they, I don't know if I want to say couldn't, but I will say wouldn't, I don't know to what extent each part like participant could or couldn't take right. ownership of that because even the guy who plays freddie acknowledges like i don't know what he said at the time but like um robert england or whatever mm-hmm. when they interviewed him for the documentary he was like 
oh yeah there was definitely homoerotic subtext and he's like yeah I was actually like actively leaning into that in the scenes where I'm like whispering in Jesse's ear and like yeah touching no his face and stuff like he yeah a thousand I was percent like which is like what I was bringing up like the dom sub relationship is there's a very this is not a thing that happens in the other Nightmare on Elm Street movies he doesn't no. like there's no like sexual tension of like he is a pedophile but like that's never really a thing that's explored in any in any of the movies. This is the only one where Freddy is like very horny and sexual with the kids. Yeah. Um, and it's just to him. He doesn't really do it. I mean, I guess he technically does it to the coach when he whips him, but he doesn't really like do that to the other characters. Even I still in this can't movie. believe that they literally have a scene where he where they Freddy have a close up of his like butt getting whipped. Butt. Yeah. Yeah. Like. <laughs> ties him up spanks him and like also like spread the coach eagle starts the scene yeah the coach starts the scene with his like like s&m outfit on and then freddie like telekinetically pulls that off and then like he's totally naked like it's a very like stripper reveal in scene the where, like, showers yeah in ties him up showers. in the shower and oh it's with a towel too he's like slapping his it's just it's yeah really it's like, so homoerotic which i'm like oh, how it sucks do you that not you di- couldn't own it because like I mean, even the idea, and this is the last thing I'll say about this, which is such a bummer, is I think that what makes Nightmare on Elm Street such a cool idea for a movie and a franchise is, like, this idea of your subconscious terrifying you and what that means for the, like, greater context of, like, society and your community and, like, who you are as a person, your identity. That's so interesting. It's a thing that's a little bit explored in the first movie, but the first movie is more just about, like... Freddy is a secret that no one's talking about. We have to get to the bottom of this mystery, yeah. figure out what our community did to this person so we can stop him getting it, <laughs> so we can survive and he won't kill any more people. This is yeah. the only, and then, then the second one, they developed that more with like using dream and nightmare as a narrative for like what you're most afraid of and what you want to hide um, and what you're most disgusted by yourself, like confronting your own demons. And I think because of the homophobic reaction to this movie and how, like, negative that was for the people involved and how they got to a point where they weren't even willing to admit that that was what they were going for, in all of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies after this, social commentary is, like, not really a thing that they even developed. Oh, interesting. Which is such a bummer. Because, like, yeah, this, after one this one didn't one do very so, well. Yeah, especially after this one that was so on the nose. Like, later on in the franchise, you get, like, Nightmare on Elm Street, the dream slayers where they learn to like fight back, but there's like not really <laughs> like <laughs> it's just they get progressively more like salaciousness and, and stupid, but and they less don't, about less the about the cool like, thing about slasher movies, which is the social commentary. And yeah, it's less about like what we're hiding and what like these characters are actually afraid of. It's more of just like what crazy. Uh, like obvious nightmares can they we put these kids in it's not about like what are these kids actually afraid of like they don't really develop any i mean there's a little there's a little bit but it's not they're clearly like afraid to explore that after the second movie which is such a bummer because i think that that's what makes nightmare on elm street so interesting as a concept um no the do you want to script after nightmare on elm street too Oh, 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 you mean I fix it? 
Yeah, you fixed the movie. So I don't think it's possible you... <laughs> to script doctor a perfect film. <laughs> you think Nightmare on Elm Street 2 is a perfect film? <laughs> um, oh, I mean, I already kind of said how I personally would script doctor, where I personally, I think the monster literally being inside of him and ripping his body to shreds is a little <laughs> on, on the nose. Just a little bit. <laughs> I think my script doctor would be, like I said, of making Freddy be the boyfriend slash guy friend, platonic guy friend, who he only has very sexy shirtless conversations with for 45 minutes of the screen's runtime. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think I would make him be the one that's slowly turning. And honestly, the way I would script doctor this... <laughs> Kill the girl. She's dead. She, the girl, <gasps> she's Who a minor her, character. Though? No, not like Freddy doesn't kill her. Oh, I like just don't have her be in the movie. My writer's editing pen kills her. <laughs> Metaphorically kill her. Got it. I think sh- we promote, we demote her to a minor supporting character. The two leads are just the best friend and Jesse. Jesse can still be like a lead. But I want to see the oh the guy main friend. character can still be the lead. <laughs> I think they're both the main characters in my okay. script doctor. I think we have equal screen time and we cut between two different family dynamics. So they Ooh, each yes. can be going through different things of what it's like to be a gay man in the 80s. But the point <laughs> is those are the two main characters. And slowly through time we see their relationship developing. But as their relationship develops and becomes more romantic the friend becomes more and more has these keeps having these dreams more about freddy, freddy. and maybe even both of them have dreams about freddy but not both of them turn into freddy just the boyfriend turns into freddy not jesse whatever his name is i have no idea we'll call him sweaty so yeah. sweaty it slowly slowly throughout the course of the film as their relationship develops and as they go through these relationship milestones together um he becomes more and more freddy and then when they're about to have sex for the first time and they're actually confronting the sexual tension that's when freddie comes out and kills jesse oh that's so sad isn't that good though i mean i guess it's sad oh and sure. also through all this whatever whatever jennifer whatever her name is is, is that the girl trying she and jesse are developing a socially acceptable relationship that makes sweaty angry because he's jealous that jesse well then why doesn't know, he kill the girl why does he have to kill jesse because it's Allie, this is still a homophobic story. I'm just script doctoring. <laughs> You're <laughs> I'm not switching the, the whole theme of the movie. I can't take away the gay legacy of homophobia from this. Of homophobic movies. But he's God. jealous of her, which adds another level of inner tor- turmoil and conflict. But in my version of the story, Jennifer gets tops 10 lines. <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah. It's the real story is a threesome between Sweaty, Jesse, and Freddie, and yeah. all their names no, sound that. very similar, which I think works out quite well. Well, you did name one of them, but sure, I, yeah. <laughs> I assume in the movie his name is also Sweaty. <laughs> in the happy um, version, instead of Sweaty getting Freddie taking over Sweaty's body and coming out of it and killing Jesse, um. They both go to the boiler room and kill Freddy together and hold hands and kiss. See, that's what I want. I want that. But that's not you a know? horror movie. But no, I mean, think about at the end of It. Or I haven't seen It Chapter 2. So It Chapter 1 and also the book where they all hold hands 
and defeat the monster together because of friendship. Yeah, Aww. and then they go on to like die in the next one. Only one only one suicide. of them dies. Okay, only two of them die. The one of them is ODing live. on pills. Like, what are you talking about? Okay, four <laughs> of the six survive, and they survive through friendship, and it's cute. So I want also a version where they survive. And... There's no such thing as a happy ending in a horror film. There's always that note of that the monster isn't really killed. Um, I like my version. Eh. It's still so sad, but I get it's what you mean. It's still sad and horror is not happy. <laughs> <laughs> I just want there to be like a horror movie, a slasher movie about gay people that like doesn't end in a gay bashing. Is that too much to ask? So this is the end of our very long exploration of queer coded slasher films. One of the sources I used for this episode that is kind of a more, like, fun, approachable source is the Teenage Slasher movie book by J.A. Kurswell. It goes through, like, <laughs> a very, very, very long history of teen slasher movies, and it has, like, a lot of, like images of early slasher movie posters which are honestly like so much fun like everything is in like that like big cheesy horror movie font I think like everything is like creepster (laughs) everything is in creepster font and there's all this like knife imagery and it's just like it's just a fun read um so yeah for more information on slashers check out Kurswell's book and next episode we're talking about queer coding in Disney films, especially in Disney princess films.